you know it's everywhere, right? Everywhere. When you walk into the house, if you have kids, it is everywhere. Especially if you have my daughter, it's beyond everywhere. And that is kids' artwork. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's on the fridge. It's handed to you as prize possessions. Here's this scrap of paper in which I scribbled blobs. It is most excellent. Thank you for holding it. I made this for you. And then snatches it back. No, I made this for you. <laughs> um, that's my daughter. She'll give it to everybody who she values, which is everyone. And uh, she'll take it away from me if I don't value it quick enough, <laughs> and she'll hand it to the next person who will value it. But the point is, kids make art. Along the way, some of us, here's looking at me, struggle with art, and so we have to find different ways to engage our creativity because my version of art, can I be fully transparent with you guys for a second? I struggle even with stick figures. Anybody out there like me? Like, just like, come on, that is not my cup of tea. If you ever caught me painting, the only type of painting that I think I could do, and I don't know how this guy made it famous, but there's like a guy who sells pieces of art for like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and all he does is take paint cans and splatter it. Somehow he splatters better than everybody else splatters, but he literally throws the up on the <laughs> on the canvas and that will be a hundred thousand dollars for this blue and red splatter I, I'm pretty sure he has better names for it than that I believe the reason why kids love to draw and paint and create and express themselves is because we are inherently capable of masterpieces. The reason why when you come into my house and if you step into my office, above my desk in my office, is a paint can lid piece of art that my son made is not because it took incredible skill to make this paint can lid art piece. I'm pretty sure the teacher helped him, and I'm pretty sure what they did was dip the can of paint in a very, very, very low volume of paint, take the can, and put it on the paper to make circles of paint together on the paper. I could do that type of painting. Doesn't take a lot of skill, especially if I'm assisted by an art teacher. But the reason why I hang it up, the reason why I put my daughter's art on the fridge is because I believe my kids are inherently capable of making masterpieces with what they do. We started this brand new series for a brand new year called Masterpiece in Progress. And it's semi about a new year and a new you, 
it's kind of a take on New Year's resolutions. It's going all the way through the book of Ephesians. And so as we, um, we didn't start this last week, but how I want to go over the next, this week and next seven more, is I want to read a key verse for us that is going to be the lens through which we read. Can we do that together? So that we have a, a vantage point that we're examining the scriptures from. And so if you'll read it with me, it's going to be on the screen. Um, it is this. Uh, no, it should be 210. If we didn't have that on the notes, you could just drop down to verse 10. And we'll read verse 10. Let's read it together. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. I love this verse. We are God's masterpiece. He created us new in Christ so that we can do the great things that he's planned for us for all time. The question um, really going on for us this morning, and if you're taking notes, you can actually put in your notes at wayfinders.info, just click on the message notes, and you can input your own along with this. But the question that we're asking is, what is God doing within you, within you, to make you a masterpiece? Because the capacity is there. Sometimes it's difficult to believe, isn't it? that we could be a masterpiece, or that that person could be a masterpiece. Here's the thing. The moment I said that person, you immediately pictured somebody. You know what I'm talking about? No way. Not a masterpiece. <laughs> That's going in the Nazi bucket. <laughs> and yet, what God says is that each and every one of us including them, have the capacity to become a masterpiece. We are all in progress. So what is God doing within you to make you a masterpiece? So today's message, we are titling The Display. The Display. Because when you have a masterpiece, you usually put it on an easel or some sort of something to put it up in front and display it, or maybe on the wall. Um, so that's kind of uh, where we are. But before we go there, um, let's just recap a little bit of last week because I think it's going to inform us as we go forward. Last week, we started in all of chapter 1 of Ephesians. And what we learned is that in the scope of God's masterpiece, essentially... The plan for the masterpiece is for God to bring all things under Christ's authority. For the giver of life and mercy and grace and hope and love, the creator and sustainer of things, to bring all things under that authority so that the 
very good blessing that has been issued from God to us will be sustained. That's a beautiful picture of God bringing everything under Christ. And in fact, we described how the book of Ephesians is actually a, a, a circuit letter written to all of the churches happened to be found in Ephesians, so it gets the name Ephesians, but it was written to all the churches, especially written to the Gentiles. By the way, unless you're Jewish, that's you and me. As far as I know, we don't have any Jewish people. If you are Jewish, please let me know. I'd love to know that. Um, but point being, this letter is written for the church and for the people that will become the church to know what the life in Christ is supposed to look like, what the church under Christ's authority is supposed to be and become. So it's a very, very strategically informative letter. But before he gets into the list of strategery, yeah, I said strategery, it's a word. Before he gets there, he does a lot of groundwork that we need to cover about who we are, about who God is, and what's going on in the big story. And so we asked the question last week, are any of us the us we want to be yet? And especially as, how many of you have already like given up on whatever resolution you may have made? Yeah? How many of us didn't make any resolutions because we know we weren't going to live up to it? Yeah. Right? None of us are the us that we want to be yet, and we could put that in any context, in relationship, in our job, as parents, with whatever skill set, in education, in patience, in hope, in mercy. Like, are any of us the us we really want to be yet? And the answer is no, we're in process. We're in progress. We are becoming because of Christ. And the truth is that God saves us and brings us into the family and he gives us this unique gift called the Holy Spirit that if we listen to and submit to, we become more and more like Christ. You see, we are constantly, consistently invited by the Holy Spirit to submit new parts of our lives under Christ's authority. So when it gets exposed that maybe we need to change that part of ourselves, maybe we need to deal with that darkness, that attitude, that addiction, maybe we need to deal with that sin and confront it head on, all of a sudden when we submit that to Christ and we say to God, hey, um, here's this thing, it's really not pleasant for me to look at, it's not good, I don't want that in my life anymore, thank you. <laughs> all of a sudden what happens is when we submit that to Christ, he takes that and aligns our life to be the masterpiece that God has in mind. So it's critical, it's paramount, it's of most importance that you and I learn to hear the voice, the spirit of God. To speak a different truth over our reality. So, um, that's kind of where we left off last week. You guys ready to jump into chapter 2? 
Let's read it together. It's going to be on the screen for you. The section is called Made Alive with Christ. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Um, some versions right there say obeying the commander of the air. Like meaning nothing. That's so interesting. Okay, anyway, sorry. Side door. The commander and powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God, so rich in mercy... God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. Can we just go back to verse 4? Could I just tell you that if you were going to memorize a verse, this is a very, very short verse, and this verse, what hangs on the balance between what goes before it and what comes after it is so contrastingly different that this verse means a whole ton of things, and it's super easy to memorize. But God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much. Who doesn't want to have that floating around in your bank of memories to just pull up anytime a foul thought comes up? That was just a side note that wasn't part of the message, but I feel like that's an easy one to memorize. So if you did want to memorize something, that one's a really really good one to start. Ephesians 2:4, by the way, in case you were wondering. Okay. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead. What does it say? Everybody say that along, uh, along with together. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Would you just pray with me for a second? Father, as we examine these words, I just ask that you would open hearts, minds, ears, tear down walls? Would your spirit speak to us? Maybe in unforeseen ways. We'll give you the next few moments. So God, if there's something you want to do with us, open us up. Amen. I love this passage of scripture. It, it, if it's not my favorite, it's definitely in my top five. Um, 
And there are some keys to this passage that when you get them, they really stand out and they really um, push us as Christians towards God's restorative work in our lives and in the world. What I have noticed, though, is on the other side of making a change, we love to take credit for the things we have done or the changes in our lives. And even if we don't love to take credit, everyone will want to give us credit and ask what you did. So if you make a change, psychologically speaking, someone in the realm of your relationships will make the change with you because of the change you chose. So statistically today, if, let's say, Chris, let's say you chose to just drink water, what would happen is um, out of all the people you know, three people would make the change to just drink water too because they're inspired by that decision. Now, they may not stay with it, but they'll make the decision to at least try it, to at least go for it. And when you make, uh, like, you make a New Year's resolution and, and somebody says, well, what are you doing, right? And you tell them what you're doing. Oh, I should have done that too, right? Like we immediately like, oh, that's a good one. I should do that too. And, and then let's say the change sticks around. A year later, people are asking like, how did you do that? And what did you do? And as if like you have now some sort of expertise and answer well, let's see, how did I get in such incredible shape? I went to the gym seven times a day, and I did, you know, and we make this list of things that we did as if we somehow were able to do it all on our own. I have news for you. There's nothing new. <laughs> we stand on the backs of people who have already made changes, done things. like So when someone comes up with a new song, it's the same song put into a different way. Those notes have been played before. Those things have been, we're standing on the backs of, but we often want to take credit. And even when we don't, we're kind of forced into this idea that we can achieve or do things on our own. This passage has these two contrasting sections. The first section about a life that we used to walk, and a second section about the life that we should walk or are now walking. And the beautiful thing is you and I have very little to do with the changes that take place in our lives other than a decision to walk. Um, the word for walk or way of life or conduct oneself in Greek is peripateo. I know that you guys all want to say peripateo. 
It's not on the screen, but let's just practice it for fun because I think it's fun to say. Perry Pateo. Oh, man. Potato, potato. Some of you really got this. I love that. And, and here's the thing. It bookends. So in verse 2 where it says, you used to live in sin, that word for used to live could be said, you used to walk in life a certain way. And by the time you get all the way down to verse 10, which we read again, the same word, we've been created anew, so that we can do is the same word, so that we walk differently. So in Greek, there's like an even bigger contrast of these two ways of walking. Have you ever noticed somebody walk differently? They walk in the room, but they have a newfound confidence. They walk in the room, but they're finally alive. They're finally, something happened. You could see it on their face. I don't know. There are different ways of walking. Some people walk like this. I, I don't know who walks like that. I'm sorry if you walk like that. <laughs> Some people, you know, the <laughs> really fast, fast walkers. Some You can't walk fast in Uggs. Oh, short legs. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, people walk certain ways. And the contrast here is like these two very stark lists of a life that was and a life that will be, of a life that used to and a life that is. And where you find yourself between these two lists is very intriguing. Let's look at them. The way we used to walk. In death, scriptures here say in disobedience, in our many sins, disconnected from God, following our passionate desires. And that's not like follow your dreams and make good in the world. That's like following our, um, our lustful decisions that lead to destruction. Okay, it's not talking about like go for it, passions. Like it's not talking about that. Um, on our sinful nature. Here's the thing. For me, it is very easy for me to be walking there. It just takes one small decision. Can I tell you a little bit of my story today? I would love to do that if you would allow me. I grew up in a Christian home. In fact, anytime the doors were open, so to speak, and so not to speak, we were there. I was brought drugged. I had the sense that I owned the church buildings and who, whose ever house we happened to go to because I somehow got this false authority because my parents were preachers and missionaries. Um, but along the way, I became really disenchanted with the church. And I believed my calling to become in ministry was just a misplaced desire to be like my dad because what little boy doesn't want to be like their dad? And over the years, I saw 
how the church treated my family. I saw some of the um, ugliest parts of people come out. And I myself felt like, I'm not sure this whole thing matters. And what that led me to become was kind of neurotic. You guys ever watch Seinfeld? Anybody watch Seinfeld? Um, George Costanza. If you don't know the character that I'm talking to, you need to go back and watch good television, first of all. Um, But secondly, um, George Costanza was always angry. Doesn't matter what it was, he always felt slighted. He was just an angry, neurotic individual. That was kind of my life. I, I still have a temper sometimes, if I'm completely honest. I was a senior in high school, and I had this crazy experience where I decided to go to a, a, a youth camp with a couple of thousand kids in Sydney, Australia, mind you, on Bondi Beach so I could surf in the mornings, right? That was the excuse. And my parents had just moved back to the States, and I asked them if I could have the summer, which in Australia is the w- winter here. So they moved back in November, and I was like, hey, um, I want to spend all of December and part of January in Australia at my buddy's house. And so you guys go, and I'm just going to stay here. And I did Christmas not with my family. It's the only time I've ever not seen my family at Christmas. But I was disconnected, and I was angry. And so as a senior in high school, I went to this camp thinking that I would just go, I would get some good surfing in, I would enjoy my last kind of hurrah before I had to finish school and go be an adult somewhere somehow. And um, they had these, like, uh, um, it was a, a church camp, obviously, and so they had these, like, seminars during the day, and one of them was entitled Knowing God's Will for Your Life. And I thought, well, that, that can't matter because um, nobody can really know that. But the person giving the seminar, his name was Tim Burton. And I'm thinking, the Edward Scissorhands guy is here? I got to go to this. It's Edward Scissorhands guy. And so um, I went. Uh, For the record, it was not Edward Scissorhands Tim Burton. It was a different Tim Burton who um, did not know that what he would say would mess my life up forever. But I went to his seminar, and he gave this list of six things that you could know God's will for your life. And um, because I'm angry and neurotic and kind of cynical, of course, I say, well, this is impossible. And so he says, uh, it'll be confirmed in prayer. It'll be confirmed in your heart. It'll be confirmed in the scripture. It'll be confirmed with other people. It'll do all of these different things. And do you know what was crazy? At the end of his seminar, and he gave a, a you know very nice seminar, he had a prayer time. And it couldn't have been more than two minutes. And during the prayer time, I'm praying, and of course it starts out, okay, God, as if this could ever really happen, I'm going to give you, like some sort of clock, 24 hours to get all six 
And if you do, then I'll know it's you. Anybody ever done this? I don't recommend it. It's not the best way to understand God or to know God's will. But, you know, naive enough to do it, and I did. And before I was done praying, I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. Before I was done praying, I was quoting a scripture that I had never read. Some Philippians chapter 3 where Paul's telling the people to follow in the example of their forefathers. Well, what you don't know is that for four generations previous to me, someone in my family was in some sort of ministry. Blinking lights are going off. I didn't know the scripture. How am I quoting it? So I feel this burden in my heart, and it's really heavy, and I go walking back to my hotel room, and I sit down on this bench on the walkway, and the main speaker of this conference had no clue who I am. I've never talked to him before. He didn't know me. He walks past me. He stops. He turns around. I kid you not, this is my only interaction with him in my entire life. I don't even remember his name. He turns around. He gets right in front of me. He goes, hey, I don't normally do this, but God's calling you to be a pastor. I just thought you should know. And then he walks away. Are you serious? Like, I can't really drop it. Jason would be really mad if I dropped the mic, so I had to catch it. But are you serious right now? Then, I'm in Australia, mind you. I had not told anyone in my family. I get a call on my phone in Australia from a man who I had known distantly who was a pastor in Oklahoma City. And he goes, hey, your sister told me that you're going to be coming to uh, Southern Nazarene University. I'm like, yeah, I got a, I got a pretty good scholarship, so I'm going to go. Well, how about you come work for me when you're here? Because I think that's what you need to do. Are you joking right now? All of these things lining up. Now, it's a process to get to where you want to be. If you'll remember, I just described myself as neurotic and angry and slighted and cynical. Do you think because of that crazy experience that all of those things immediately went away? Let me testify to you. They did not. Wherever I have gone in life, I have still been there. Yes? You guys understand what I'm saying when I say that. However, every time I have said yes to the next piece in this unfolding puzzle, every time I have said yes, something has happened. And a shift begins to take place in my heart. I can tell you I'm much less angry today than when I first got married. You can ask Holly. She will let you know. See, what happens is the way that we did walk doesn't stop being the way that we walk until we allow that to be submitted to Christ. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. 
So just because we have a high calling doesn't mean we become whatever that high calling is instantly. It takes the process and the progress and the work and the day in and the day out of the choices that we choose to become the masterpiece that God wants us to be. And so it might start with the decision to actually come to church and to sit in the very back row. And then it might come up to a decision where you want to maybe get involved and join a group. But you just come to the group and you don't say anything and you, you don't want those people as friends. And then it might become that after you've been doing that for a while, you get asked to serve. And you start serving somewhat begrudgingly. But then you start to realize that you like it. And it's changing your heart and your life and it's softening you. And so instead of sitting at the back, you sit in the middle. And then maybe during worship at some point you feel this odd call to lift your hands. Because you're essentially saying, God's at work in my heart and life doing something. And I don't know what it is, but I can't help but say thanks because it's good. I don't know if that's how you work. But those progression and steps eventually lead to you leading something and doing something and making something with your life that you never thought possible because you made a decision to walk. Now, used to walk in death, disobedience, many sins, disconnected from God, following uh, passionate desires or lust in your sinful nature. And then verse 4 says, but God... rich in love and mercy and kindness. But God loved us. What does it say exactly? He so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that he gives us a new way to walk in light way, saved, raised with Christ. And verse, according to verse 7 and 8, he puts us, some versions say, he puts us on a shelf as a display for all people of future generations to see what God can do. Notice he didn't say to show your glory. He's, he's not showing you off. He's showing him off through the way you and I have been changed as an example of God's mercy, grace, and kindness united with Christ. So, there's these two contrasting ways of walking. I want to show you this as we kind of head to the end. I want to show you this picture of a kid doodling with a Sharpie on the wall. Yes, that is Sharpie. Now, if my kids had Sharpie on the wall, my inclination, a la George Costanza, would be to go ballistic. Yes? That would be my immediate inclination. How could you do this? Ruining the wall. That doesn't even look like a house. Uh, you know, find the flaws in the dimensions of the windows. You know, like. And what does this parent do? These parents are incredibly wise. These parents have the wisdom of God to put a frame around them. And 
hit a sign. about their kid's masterpiece. If you walk into the house, you notice about kid height a frame with an art tag next to it. And it's framed a picture of a house done in Sharpie on the drywall. You see... When we start walking, when we start trying, when we start involving ourselves, you know what we come up with? Scribble. Scribble. When you try to change your life on your own, do you know what you come up with? Disproportionate houses that are lopsided and clearly about to fall, done in Sharpie, not even in a good color, on the wall, which nobody really wanted there. And yet, what does God see? God sees the end in mind because he sees you with the capacity to be a masterpiece. And he knows that someday someone would want to see the beginnings of the transformation that was your life that was his church, that was his world, it started there. And you know what happened? When that parent put a frame around that, they encouraged their child's capacity and commitment to art. You know what I found out? Interesting, the internet's full of anecdotal things sometimes. This kid that made this is now in college as an art major. I think God frames our scribble and says, you can become, you can become. Now, I want to break down something for you very quickly as we head to a close, and the band's going to come up. But here's the thing. There's a Greek view of thought that we battle in the United States. It's a Western type of thought that says, when you believe the right way, you'll act the right way. And that's true to some extent. But I have a question. What comes first, belief first or actions first? Because the Hebrew, the, the orthodox view of change says that you act a certain way and then it informs and eventually shapes your beliefs. I'm here to say that it's not you have to get your stuff together and beliefs right, and then you act perfectly. That does happen, but so does the other way around. That little piece of art on the wall was not a masterpiece. But if you believe in the capacity to become, put a frame around. And so wherever you and I are at, wherever our church is at, we're not the perfect church, we're people. <laughs> Can I emphasize that again? We're not the perfect church, we're people. But verses 5 and 8 of this passage, they say that even though we were dead because of our sin, 
He gave us life when he raised up Christ from the dead. And then in parentheses it says, it's only because of God's grace you have been saved. In verse 8 it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. The word for saved there is in the perfect present. If you know anything about perfect tense, it means you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That means that you and I are in a constant state of redemption and restoration. It means you and I come from a, a broken down house that got moved on stilts that is slowly being put back together to become all of the glory of its intended purposes. But when we walk disconnected from God, we start putting hammers and holes in walls and allowing wood to rot. And when we walk united with Christ, we begin laying down a floor that restores and putting the walls back together and creating the right spaces. It's when we submit, when we come to the end of ourselves. Notice it says it's not something you can boast for because it's not something you can do. It's when we come to the end of ourselves that God makes masterpieces out of us. And our good works, verse 10, that says you were saved for good works. Our good works are outcomes of a new life in Christ. And every new work, though it may start out as a scribble, God frames and says, future masterpiece. Future masterpiece. Future masterpiece. They're in process. They're in progress. That church that I'm making down there, oh man. That life that I'm making right there, they don't have to be trapped in anger and cynicism and frustration or addiction. That life that I'm making right there, they're going to be restored and whole. And in fact, the word, and I think it's going to be on the screen for you, the word for masterpiece is the word poema. It's where we get the word poem from, where we get poetry from. It's handiwork, masterpiece, workmanship. It's what happens when God makes beauty out of us. When you and I choose to submit those parts of ourselves that we're walking differently under Christ, we get united with him. So church, let me ask you this. If you have struggled at any point to walk the life that God has for you, maybe you've never taken the first step. Maybe you've taken several steps, but you always find a struggle out of a particular issue. 
a sin, an addiction, an attitude, or whatever, just throw in. Maybe it's time to submit that to Christ. And say, God, I want to see you move. So do what you want to. Maybe it's time we take out the fear and the shame and we start making art. Even our stick figure art can become something. Can I tell you the coolest piece of art that I ever did? The stick figure art where you put a little bit of movement in each page and then you flip the page to make it do something. It's the best piece of art I've ever done. And it's a masterpiece. Sure, my daughter could do it better than me. And she's five. But there's no one can be you except you. God has called you a masterpiece. And he wants to frame your scribble. So as we stand up and we sing this song, do what you want to. My question is, do you want to be the person, do you want to be the church that is the poema, the masterpiece, the poem, the handiwork, workmanship of God? And if it's a yes, I would ask for this song to become your cry out and your prayer to say, God, I do want to see you move in this area of my life, so I submit this challenge and this problem. I submit this attitude and this culture. I submit this darkness and this sin. I submit these things to you. And God, I need you to move. And maybe as much as I try, all I can muster is a scribble on the wall that's leaning and it doesn't look right. But you tell me that someday I'm a masterpiece. So God, would you help me take the steps? That's all I'm asking is to say yes, to submit to life under Christ and the promises that you and I will be united and whatever we scribble on the wall will get attacked with an art thing that says, yep, masterpiece, it's happening right here, right now in you. So would you stand and sing with me?